1: I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show, because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out
0: there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore.
2: Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And we're going to talk a little Darvin Ham today. I've been wanting to record this pod for a minute now, looking at the season to date and then the season going forward forward through Darvin's eyes and experience the best we can. Now, in some ways, every episode that we do is talking about Darvin and the decisions that he has to agonize over, we're agonizing over as best we can. But Darius, I can't think of another first-time job, first year of of a first-time head coach that was quite like this. This is one of the most unusual first years in terms of the circumstances that the coach was going into, and then the circumstances for the first part of the year as this team that was in transition that ended up looking very different come late February and trade deadline than it did at the beginning. And so I've been trying to see who Darwin is under these really extraordinary circumstances where it's difficult to do that. And so I'd like to start there. The start of this season and the way that it's gone is just so unusual. And I, I think that it's important to kind of frame that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Dee, and just like what Darvin walked into and what this season has been from a head coach's perspective.
3: Yeah, this is where I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of the interviews, because I remember way back in the in the off season when the Lakers were interviewing candidates. There was that reporting around the idea that candidates are being asked to speak to how they would incorporate Russell Westbrook into the rotation and what their plan would be for him and, and all of this stuff. Sort of signaling that one of the key requisites for the job is how you're going to coach this specific player when we as a fan base, I think, and outsiders, and maybe even some insiders, I have no clue, we're already planning for life without Russell Westbrook. Like, wait, he'll be gone by the draft. Right. Like or <laughs> at least when the summertime comes mm-hmm. and lo and behold, that was not the case. And 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 so speaking to your point, I think Darvin was asked to balance a lot of competing factors that a lot of head coaches don't have to balance at all, much less a first year head coach much less a first year head coach in like his first year with the team, mm-hmm. right? Because there are some head coaches where it's their first job, but they are assistant on that staff. Yeah. Yes, right? And so Darwin's coming to a brand new team. He doesn't know any of the players um, besides coaching against them or his experience within the league. He has to navigate this situation in which there's just this elephant in the room about... I have to coach the team that I have, but the undercurrent of the atmosphere that is out there is that this isn't the team I'm going to have. And so how do you walk that line and how do you balance that? And I think Darvin did a good job of trying to get the best out of the individual players he had at his disposal, while also dealing with the ramifications of that from a team perspective if that makes sense. And I think it was that latter part of why he's probably come under a fair amount of fire in his first season from outside observers, especially about like his management of the rotation and individual um, substitution decisions. And Mm -hmm. should he go back to this player? Why isn't this player playing more? Like, why is this the lineup that's in at this part of the game? There's been a lot of second guessing of him. I've done some of that myself, so I'm not I'm I'm not absolving myself from that line of thought. It's been such a weird ask of him. And it's one of the more unusual asks that I can recall of a first year head coach in general, right? Like just, hey, go coach this team with this this interesting mix of players that no one really thinks is going to be the team that you end the season with, but coach them as if they're the team you got. And that balancing act is just a tricky thing. He's done well, and then he struggled, but that's like as to be expected.
4: I think the most important thing that Darvin Ham has done this year is is just he's his force of personality and the way that he relates to people. I think he's really, for the most part, gotten them to play hard. And, and that's not to say that players don't have agency on their own. Players should always play hard. It's It's just it's more of the... As I always try to explain this, it's like relative to the team that you're playing against that also has professional players whose jobs are on the line that have incentive to play hard as well. And so the coach there and the relationship between the coaching staff and especially the head coach, um, that that does make a big difference. And I think that Darvin checks all of those boxes really well. In terms of the rotation and X's and O's and, and in-game adjustments and all that, I think that's a challenge for any first year head coach, unless, you know, maybe there are some that have had like extensive G League experience or the Nick Nurse types that have coached in different head coaching jobs all over the world. You know, Darwin Darvin has mostly been in the NBA as a player and as, and as an assistant coach, and he cites the time that he did get to, um, to run a G League team uh, for a shorter period of time. But you know that I still think that that is a little bit different in terms of reps. And so that's where he does, he probably still would love to have additional time and years to keep stacking those beliefs and ideas mm-hmm. as to how to execute and, and what like what he really believes in. But I think he kind of has set a base system and then told his players, be you within this system. And there are a couple things that he really emphasizes. And among those are just getting the best energy and effort and all of that. And that that alone, I think, gives the team a chance to win games. uh, And he deserves credit for that. The whether or not he gets to that, like that next climb where you've had all of those, you know, you're the one that's sort of making the adjustment. And then everybody else is sitting back and thinking, oh, wow, you know, I that's a what a great adjustment this is something that 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 is going to help this team win specifically this game that we would now aspire or assign to like a spolstra right or rick carlisle like those guys that have been through all those battles but i think that most important part pete darvin has had um and and has done really well this season with the personality side and and getting guys to buy in
2: yeah it could have gone way worse than it did i think like we needed to Do the best with the guys that we had, uh, especially before the trade deadline, and just kind of we we had this path to walk down where it was like you need to build the team while being cognizant of what Russ does and what your talent does, while also being able to function post trade of him, right? And I think towing that line is difficult and could have gone way worse than it did. Aside from the Russ element, though, like. I just want to point out that the roster was very strange. It was also in this in-between spot where it's like we've got a 6-1 guy playing small forward and half the team is guards. And so and we don't have on a team that has Russ and LeBron and AD, we don't have the Malik Monk or Carmelo Anthony type shooter on the perimeter afterward, right? And so I want to move the conversation now to on the court D is I'm seeing right now a change in kind of our style of play that I was curious to see if it would happen and how long it would take to do that. Because we've talked a bit about how, in many respects, we are the opposite thing of what we used to be and how the offense is run when you've got really these drive and kick type of guys, but not a lot on the kick end, right? The Not a lot of shooters. The way that looks compared to having D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley, and even Mobamba, right, and Rui Hachimura, these guys who whose jump shots and perimeter game are the most defining aspects of their game. Seeing kind of where we're going from here and the the changes that we've made there, I, I think the on court story on really both ends of the floor whether it's that or on defense going from Thomas Bryant and having uh, him as our backup to when in and, and, and Mo now there's, there's just been a lot of change. And so he's been kind of surfing this ever changing environment within that, that I'm starting to see us kind of coalesce into the thing that we're going to be. And so I'm curious, your thoughts on just the story of the on court stuff throughout the season.
3: Well, I think this goes back to the benefit of Darwin having And I don't mean this in a pejorative way at at all, but a fairly like simplistic approach to offensive and defensive basketball. And so his four out one in system offensively, his sort of base drop coverage, like big man sort of hanging in the paint protection style defense. Those are straightforward and simple approaches on both sides of the basketball. And that allows for a certain amount of malleability And how you can then adjust what you're doing tactically from an X's and O's perspective while still staying within the framework of that system as your personnel changes. Right. And so one of the things that you and you had remarked on 35 games into the season was like, hey, man, the Lakers are good on offense now. I know that this. Idea of them being a bad offense and no shooting and this is that and the other like those two things were being transposed on to each other like oh they're a bad shooting team and so they suck at offense when in reality there was like a six week period during the season almost two months where they were like in the top five of offense over that stretch and it was because of all of this variety of like pick and roll stuff that they were doing like empty side pick pick and rolls strange angle pick and rolls ball reversal pick and rolls
2: that to me is where the complexity comes in i agree with the like general the general structure is simple and and basic but the different personnel combinations within the pick and rolls what type of pick and roll you run where the angle where where the screen comes from that's really where the complexity and minutia comes in
3: No, and that's why I'm saying that within the the framework is simple, right? But within that framework, Mm -hmm. you're then starting to drill down and find all of this nuance that you can extract from that simplicity in order to remain effective, even as teams try to scheme you out of what you're doing. And fast forward to the team post-trade deadline and... Mike, there's still a lot of pick and roll actions. They still run a ton with Dennis and and with Austin when LeBron is back and when D'Lo is back. They're still gonna be a pick and roll heavy team. Even Beasley and Troy Brown will run occasional pick and rolls, but they're also running way more like off-ball screen actions for Malik Beasley. They're also like putting A D at the elbows rather than in the dunker spot and throwing the ball to him there, they're running more split cut actions. They are running more handoff actions. They are screen to screener actions where it's like, they're trying to get people into space in order to receive catches rather than trying to like screen and then get people downhill all of the time to score at the rim. And all of that still works within this, framework of, well, we want to run a four out one in system and that sort of adjustment and evolution that Pete was describing. I think you have to give credit to Darwin and his staff. They are adjusting on the fly to the new personnel that they have available to them. And they are doing so in a way that's allowing the Lakers to compete on both sides of the ball.
4: There's another thing with Darvin, I think. He still has a couple of cards in his hand that he hasn't played yet. And because he's been so, in terms of with us, like with the media side of it, he's been generally very supportive, positive, and you know, quick to give the other team credit as opposed to rip his guys, that if he does want to rip his guys, not, and again, because he's built some credibility, I think, within that locker room too, that he can do that a few times. Mm-hmm. And like what Darvin said after the Minnesota game, was relatively like very little in terms of critique but it's still i think it had a little bit of sway you know because he's been he's been he's been careful not to go too far and that's where i think to me part of the being an nba player not that you have to be or just being around the nba for a long time and seeing what these guys go through and being a person that has empathy for others which is certainly a yeah. darwin ham trait um, i think that 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 that's the kind of thing and I know I'm back on the personality based stuff because I think you guys do such a great job with the um with the x's and o's to to just lend a little bit more to that and then you know guys do genuinely like Darvin. it's it's not just like they they sort of tolerate him because he's fine even though he's older he's a head coach like they they are excited to see him you know he's got a joke for everybody he's he's can do the He's good at the locker room ribbing type stuff but not in the in the way that even when we were growing up playing sports the locker room ribbing still seemed to be a little bit harsh or at least it was for me oh yeah we were um, we and, were much yeah. meaner
2: like 20 30 years ago we were mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah
4: and he so he can be like i think it's, it's partly because he's funny like if you can be a little bit funny if you're gonna do a little bit of a dig and he just has a, a good balance there so that's that's still the kind of stuff that I think that is a big time strength for Darvin. Uh, and I'm I'm at the point where I'm wanting a little bit more of a sample size to watch how he how he operates with a roster that makes some more sense. Yeah. Which, as Pete referred to earlier, and we've talked about all year, we knew going into the season that it was imbalanced. There's too many guards there were almost zero wings. That is no longer an issue now. So now that there's going to be a couple of weeks and right now they're seven and three. But a couple of weeks on top of this uh, in, to see where he goes in terms of roster choices and rotation choices and adjustment choices that I'm going to be watching closely. And, and I think he does deserve that time you know, to, to show what he can do in that sense.
2: Let's take a break. And when we come back, I'd love to focus in on the idea of adjustments.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all
2: So what I'm seeing develop with this new group of players, I think, speaks to one of Darvin's strengths in that he understands the guys that he has. And so at the beginning of the year, the guys that he had were very unusual as a collective. And he figured out a way to to build this paint assault Type offense that didn't have a ton of outside shooting to complement it, but we were still able to get into the paint. Now, as we have these new guys, I'm seeing us just play stylistically different, which is a really good, uh, really good thing from our coach. Right, one of the things I was worried about is that we'd still be running this dribble penetration four out type of style where it's like you just give the ball to guards every time and you know try to dribble penetrate off of that much more player movement the stuff you were talking about D a moment ago that really suits the personnel better but in-game adjustments has been something that i think a lot of the criticisms yeah. of Darwin are very similar to the criticisms of Budenholzer let's and let's focus on the defensive end to start out on on that D my observation of watching Milwaukee and and the Lakers and even Memphis to a degree is that the overall idea of the defense is to play the percentages, that it's like that the math is going to work out for you if you do these certain things like, yeah, maybe guys get hot, maybe another team gets hot. But eventually, if you stick with this, it's going to work out in your favor in aggregate. I think there's weaknesses within that, within individual matchups of which like allowing Grant Williams to shoot 17 open threes in game seven of a conference finals is kind of the ultimate manifestation of not adjusting from what you do. But on the other side of things, D, there's a There's a thought within basketball that you don't get beat the same way three times in a row. So if you're in one of those drop coverages and Ja comes off of it and hits a little floater, okay, that's the shot you give up. He does it the second time and knocks that down again. On that third play, there are a lot of coaches, a lot of basketball people who think, You either need to show high, you need to switch, you need to do something different to keep the player from getting into a rhythm. And that's something I've seen as get beat three times in a row by the same thing a lot. And so the idea of adjustments with Darwin to me is a conversation that's part big picture of how do you play with this new Mm -hmm. group of guys that I really like, but then the smaller picture that can be a little inflexible.
3: Yeah. And I think that every coach has to manage that in, in their own way. And every coach starts to get a feel for that. And I think that speaks to Mike's point about this being the first time he's had to be the guy who makes the decision on when to change Mm -hmm. and how quickly to change and how quickly they themselves see the change that needs to happen. Right. And not everyone is as prescient. Not everyone is as responsive. Not everyone is as quick to recognize this is the shift that needs to happen or that I think should happen. That is going to cut off the water of what the other team is, is doing. There's other coaches who come from the school of thought that we're going to keep doing what we do. And if you beat me doing that over the course of the full game, then I'm going to tip my cap. Right. And like John Morant taking eight foot floaters over and Anthony Davis contest that might be a play where Darwin feels like that's the shot we want them to take. Oh, they they are continuing to make it. Well, I can't stop the ball from going into the basket. All I can do is continue to have my guy play the coverage the way that we want and if it's a small tweak of hey, make sure you're a little bit more aware, get that hand up quicker, those are individual asks of the player but they're not adjustments to the scheme that you're running. I try to show grace with Darwin in those moments, while also being frustrated when the thing happens too many times. But I think again to speak to Mike's point earlier is when you're a first-year head coach, like these are the growing pains of things. Like, go ask a Celtics fan what they think of Joe Missoula. There's this idea of like you're a first-year head coach, you're not making all of the adjustments, like. You're so easy to second guess as a Mm -hmm. first year head coach, and there is a learning curve, and there is no escaping that learning curve, Mike. And this is the ride that the Lakers are on with with Darwin. No coach is perfect, but I feel like it's easier to point out the imperfections of a guy who's doing something for the first time because you want him to get it right. But I've said this a bunch, and you know this as as a parent as well that growth isn't always and progress isn't always linear, right? Like you, you think, well, you should have learned from that the last time you should be better this time. And that's not exactly how life works. And that's not how coaching in the NBA works either.
4: Yeah, no doubt. It's, I think that to, to sort of to build off of that in thinking about coaches that used to be assistant coaches and the system that the, that their head coach at the time built, and they probably contributed to in some ways, what percentage of that was built towards like an overall basketball philosophy? And what part was towards that team that they had and the personnel that they had? And hmm. I, I just think that's such a delicate dance. And so you can come up and Pete, uh, even thinking about probably your high school teams, they can come up and think, man, you know, the, the type of d- the defense that I love to play because this is what my influences were are yep. X and then you try you put that in for a while and you have a little bit of success with it but then you start to play some good teams like oh shit this doesn't work at all or your big man gets hurt and then all of a sudden you can't do the type of coverages you were doing so i like i tend to think that the the best coaches really do have like they have some base ideas but they adjust it every year based on the personnel yeah. and i just think it's very difficult to do that in the first year when whatever your principles are you're still putting in like it's it's one thing for spolstra to impl- to change his principles or not his principles his scheme a little bit when he's got continuity of six seven guys that have played the way he's played or steve Kerr uh, with the warriors where <clears throat> like they're running principles off the ball they you just get that by having steph and draymond and clay and that continuity from those guys that that just like flows out of practice and then if you want to put a twist on it you can and and so th- there's just so many different things going on there and i i think that Part of the place that I start with defensively, it is about that simple like the drop coverage. And I like my my personal belief is, is that the rim is the most important thing. But then I've I've been wrestling with that some in recent years as the three point shot has gotten increasingly important. And then what part of that and, and when can you veer out of just a straight drop to have big show higher? And I thought like that's something that I thought Frank Vogel did pretty well in the 1920 season. Uh, when they had kind of the the rim is the thing is the base but they had these lineups they could go to that could just suffocate three-point shooting teams um and in the traps and the rotations and all that stuff without much practice time um i'm always impressed when coaches can go to that and the players can respond to it and you know how darvin fits into that whole ecosystem still does remain to be seen because like we've seen him with a sensible roster now for like two weeks a couple things that bug me are like the the just let in bud system in the past, which I think they've gotten off this year some is just pick a guy that we don't that isn't a good shooter based on percentages mm-hmm. and just let them shoot the whole game. It's it's just like that sometimes doesn't work and you can lose you very much will lose a game because of it. And the benefit of it just doesn't to me outweigh the just a, a soft closeout. But even then I, I, I feel I feel a little silly, right? making that kind of a point because they're doing it for a reason. And and those numbers do exist. So anyway, that's that's just one little tenet of a, I think like a belief that seems to be coming out of that, that sometimes in practice is more frustrating than just trusting the numbers.
2: I don't think it's silly at all, Mike, to to point that out. That's exactly the types of things that even Darwin and his coaching staff are going to debate, you know, do we soft close out or do we completely leave this guy? I tend to agree with your overall philosophy. And I think that that's where the distinction between getting through 82 games and winning playoff series really come into play. I think that over the course of a regular season in all 30 teams, you're going to face plenty of teams where it's like, yeah, that, that one guy that night leaving him, we could totally do that and be fine. I think over the course of a seven game series, especially as you get to, good teams in higher level basketball, it can be, well, the other team doesn't have anybody <laughs> that we're going to be completely yeah. leaving. And <laughs> you have to be good at at guarding everybody, at, at guarding all five to uh, some degree. That said, we're first in defense since the trade deadline. So that speaks to the, there, yeah. there's been some degree where like, you know, we've talking about the playoffs and things like that. Up until this point, we've had to survive, you know, for a good portion of the season in the last couple of years is just... Win the game in front of you tonight against OKC. I don't care that that's not who we're going to face in the Western Conference finals. That's not where we're at. And so those are that's a dilemma that I think is down the line in terms of, you know, leaving guys and and, and uh, open versus, you know, guarding everyone. But, you know, the results speak for themselves. D were you know first in defensive rating since the trade deadline, as I said, and with D'Lo and LeBron out, that's needed to be the basis of what we do. And so, my question to you is: What are you looking for going forward in terms of Darwin and his adjustment to this new roster? And like we've seen this ten game sample, what happens next?
3: Well, hopefully, what happens next is they continue to win all of this is predicated off of wins and losses. Like we definitely love to live in the minutia of what gets you to a win or what gets you to a loss. But in the big picture, Darwin has settled the team and he has found a way to get to them in a way where he's inspiring them out there to play as hard as they can. And some of that is internal motivation. I don't want to say like Darwin, some puppet master who is getting the best out of every single player and he's getting them to play hard when they normally wouldn't like that's folly. One of the most important things, if not the most important thing a head coach can do is generate and maintain buy-in. That's it. That's it. If you generate and maintain buy-in, those guys are going to do – players are going to do what you ask of them and they're going to do it to the best of their abilities. You lose that and it doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how great your X's and O's are. doesn't matter how tactical your brain is, how quickly you see the adjustment, how much you're going to say, no, you need to be up here because this guy is doing that. And on the backside,
2: you need to – no, guess what? They ain't going to do it. One of the most informative years I ever spent coaching was as an assistant, where I went like once or twice a week to help a guy out, kind of as a video coordinator. And I'll well, maybe I'll tell more of the story over the course of the summer. But it was a disaster. Like, and by midway through the the league in in the season, like the coaches hated, or I'm sorry, the players hated the coach, and the feeling was very much mutual. And so, like in some ways, that's too much of an exaggeration of what happened last season. But when that buyout leaves, it becomes very apparent and it's like it doesn't really matter what scheme you're running or anything like that like that's the first fundamental ingredient no like do your players listen to you do they care yeah. and this
3: goes back to mike's point about like how much equity do you have in that room and like if that's so Darwin doing things the way that he did mike Coming into the CUs and whether it was catering too much to Russ or empowering Patrick Beverly as much as he did, like leveraging his veteran voices in order to be key stakeholders within the locker room. That was the path that he chose in order to try to get the most out of the specific players that he had. And I think that he got guys to play hard for him. And now there's been a trade and he's continued to get guys to play hard for him. And speaking to Pete's point about um, the team being like top rated in defense since since the trade deadline, yeah, it helps when you have better defensive players. It helps when you have a more balanced roster. It helps when you have even without LeBron James and, and Anthony Davis or D'Angelo Russell, it's just like, yeah. Well, guess what? D'Lo is probably not your best defensive guard. LeBron's defensive energy waxes and wanes based off of opponent part of the game. How important is that possession? Yada, yada, yada. You know, whose defensive motor does not turn off Jared Vanderbilt. Yeah. Dennis Schroeder's Anthony Davis's Troy Brown. I wrote today at silver screen and roll (laughs) in the last five games, the games that LeBron has not played when Troy Brown Jared Vanderbilt and Anthony Davis are on the court. You know what the Lakers defensive rating is? Hmm. It's not a big sample. It's 54 minutes. Just take a stab at it.
2: 95? 92.4. And just league leading, by the way, just for context is like 107, somewhere around there? Yes. 107, 110. They've
3: been yeah, at yeah. 107 over the past like 10 games or something yeah. like that.
2: And we're like two points better than, than the next closest team with that. So my point is,
3: Mike, is that Yes, the roster makes more sense. Yes, Darvin is getting the best out of these guys, but it's just like, it's going to be a collective effort and it's going to be a partnership between the players and the coaches. And that's how it always is when you're going to be a successful team. Success within the context of this season for the Lakers, that's a moving target. Earlier during the season, success might've looked like making 30% of your three-pointers
2: on any (laughs) given night. (laughs) We were struggling, man. We were holding on
3: and 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 now success mike looks like trying to continue to climb higher than what they've already climbed with with the night seed and trying to continue to stack wins and doing it without lebron james and darvin is going to be a key piece of that adjustments are not lineup changes are not all all of this stuff it's uh, but it is this partnership between him and the players
4: Yeah, so I was talking to our our buddy, Aaron Larsoul, uh, the other day in a a new venture that he's doing on uh, playback.tv. By the way, Darius came on. Shout out to you. Um, That was fun. And and we're always, I'm always sort of referencing stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, Pete said that on the pod the other day. And of course, uh, most people in there are kind enough to be um, LFR listeners. And if you do want to check it out, just go to at Mike Trudell. Um, I've got several retweets on there. And one of the things we were talking about, Pete, was this whole what is like what is behind the defense and aside from the obvious and Anthony Davis and then I was looking at the defensive rating since the all-star break and the team that is actually just ahead of the Lakers in defensive rating have you have you seen have you seen this
2: yes I I thought we passed them last night maybe yeah yeah
4: no yeah well because are we second play, so yeah we're second but okay it's it's the maybe like the 29th team that I would have guessed. <laughs> yes. yes. It's first in defensive rating. And it, since you guys already know it's the Charlotte Hornets. And I was like, well, I mean, they have won four of their seven games, and I guess, but it's like, wait, what's what's happening? How? Right?
2: How? How? Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they're battling, I guess, and like no Lamelo helps the defense. I guess like Rozier is is, is point of attack and and then Mark Williams, right? The center. The rookie, pain and then, That's and then like, dude. so they're, yeah, they're just like Ubre, They're just kind of like a little bit bigger and longer and, but still number one in the league. Um, yeah, that was, that was a little odd, but the Lakers being right up there and then the three teams behind them, Golden State, Memphis, and Phoenix, you know, who have good defensive personnel and continuity and along those lines. But while we're recording, I just saw the Kevin Durant thing. Kevin Durant couldn't miss the rest of the regular season. Uh, with that ankle which apparently was just worse than it looked and what is this what, says, what is going on when it's, non- when it's non-contact though in that sense that like that is and it's usually i my guess is that it's the same leg that he was recovering from um on that but all that aside it's just it's just this league is it's so tenuous right now Right. And the Lakers have unfortunately been on the side where other teams might be thinking, oh, the Lakers are coming. And then somebody something happens to somebody. But mm-hmm. if they like they've got enough now to recover for one somebody essentially other than Anthony Davis. And that's been part of the surprise, even with LeBron James, who carried the Lakers through much of the season when AD was out, like they have they've been able to put together enough defensively. And and that, because that yeah. is the end of the court that went for LeBron to get through a full game, he does have to give a little bit back defensively. And, and yet like when he does return, um, I think that this this base way that they're playing defensively, those principles and concepts can stick in there. And the offense is going to be helped so much by LeBron's return. I think more to the, to the, to the degree than the defense will suffer, especially when the games are important, you know, and mm-hmm. LeBron is thus able to, um, to sort of decide which part of his pie is energy pie he can distribute there so that's still that's still a few weeks away clearly but I'm just already thinking ahead to that and then you know also what D'Angelo Russell does I don't I think he's playing a little bit better defensively this year than people would realize having watched him in the past like he's fine Uh, there are certain places where he hurts you but he does he is smart enough now he doesn't know mostly what spots to get in he will stick to the game plan for the most part. So those are those are just a couple of things to add on to. All right, well, how high can the Lakers stay rating-wise defensively with this current way that they're playing, in, especially as D'Lo and LeBron come back in?
2: Yeah, it's that's going to be the thing of trying to keep this defensive rating as high as possible, but jump from 22nd or whatever we are on offense during the same time period. And so that's those are the guys that are the keys to that. D, before we wrap up, any closing thoughts on Darvin? No, just that... Just
3: I wanted to revisit one thing that Mike said earlier about the best coaches and adaptability and them sort of adjusting things. I think that that's true, but I also think it's true only to a certain extent. I look at Phil Jackson. I look at Steve Kerr. And in different situations, those dudes got lambasted for not changing, for not changing. Like you run an antiquated system in the triangle, the triple post, like ah yada, 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 yada. Last year talk to Warriors fans uh, or that year that Steph missed the entire season and Kelly Oubre was in there mm-hmm. and they're just like, what is Steve Kerr doing continuing to run this system with none of the players available to him who make the system work? And why isn't he, why has not he running a hundred pick and rolls a game and this, this, that, and the other. And there is a stubbornness that comes with being a great head coach too. And I'm interested to see, the flexibility that exists within Darwin and his schemes while also holding on to a certain rigidity that makes a NBA head coach and NBA head coach. Mm-hmm. Like I remember thinking, I remember when Mike Dantoni was playing, was coaching the Lakers, and it was just like, yep, yeah, you know who is a major important piece for this team? It's Earl Clark. You know why? Because he's the stretch forward that helps that system what dan tony wants to do offensively it's what makes it work Mm -hmm. and dan tony's just like if i'm gonna get fired i'm gonna get fired going out coaching my style having my players play the style that i want to play and damn it frank vogel did the same thing last season he's just like malik monk make the damn low man rotation Mm -hmm. make it Right. Because there's a certain amount of stubbornness that you need to have, too, if you're going to achieve anything in this league. But all it's all it always comes with a balance, Pete. And that would be my only point. We're in the infant stages of where Darvin is going to be as as a head coach. And I'm super interested in seeing how he evolves, what he sticks to, where he's flexible, where things change. But he is done to me overall, a good job of navigating what has truly been a chaotic Laker season, a chaotic Laker season. And he has them trending in the right direction in the part of the season where it matters the most.
2: One of the elements of Darvin's story that we haven't touched on too much is if you look at the places around the world that basketball has taken him, it's quite remarkable and just the different roles that he's been in and was not somebody as a player that I don't think anyone was like, oh yeah, that guy's a... Future head coach, right? He's earned every bit of territory that he's gotten in the NBA, longtime assistant coach. And I think that being in that many different environments allows somebody to be a little more adaptable. They've seen, oh, I've seen this before, right? Now maybe it's in another country and much lower level basketball, but a lot of times the principles can carry over from one place to another. And so I think that his adaptability has been a great strength for the team. But now is where the serious can we become a championship contender? type of basketball comes into play. so curious to see what darvin ham has up his sleeve all right we'll be back tomorrow uh, got a game tomorrow night so we'll preview that a little bit i think talk about kd a bit luca is struggling luca and Bi went out of the same game with injuries yesterday um just a crazy league man i wish i wish health were a better thing around the league that uh this wasn't such a big storyline but yeah we'll preview the game jump around the league a little bit but until then You've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time.
3: Danger's got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn double team. Just pass out of front. Broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic. Got
1: it. Magic fires. It's yeah, the Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Good morning, Lonnie. Three seconds left. That next to the winner. It. It's on the way. Kobe Bryant. 48 points. 16 rebounds. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the First move. Two score. Missing. it! And the
0: It's over. And shot clock out of five. Oh, yeah. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tap to Alvin
1: Gentry.